Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and today I have the pleasure of talking to Michael Shulman, the author of Oscar Wars. The Tale of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat and Tears. It is a brilliant history of the Oscars and it shows you the development of the Motion Picture Academy and how it um, has changed over the years, how it's developed, how it's become the thing it is today, including explosive incidents, mistakes, slaps, the whole lot. If you enjoy the conversation, please remember to leave a review, a rating, uh, and spread the word generally. That would be great. You can subscribe, of course, and you can follow me on Twitter, if you like, at DrJonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. I'm also available throughout other social networks um, with some sort of variation on Dr. Jonty usually. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. is coming out in paperback soon is that right yeah on february 20th i i'm someone who has become not virulently against the oscars <laughs> wait have we started by the way yeah <laughs> yeah it? this is it <laughs> okay you're okay not virulently against the oscars but but 
And you know that anything that comes after but, is, <laughs> anything that comes before but is nonsense. Uh, but yeah, a little bit disenchanted by the way the whole of the industry has sort of, the whole, and by that industry, I don't mean movies necessarily, but entertainment journalism has kind of, it's become a, a well, you, you say in your book, it's become a, a cottage industry in and of itself, right? It certainly has. Yeah. I mean, in, in not just in media, but for uh, PR and marketing people, strategists, you know, there are jobs where people just plan award season and uh, spend the entire year positioning movies, basically. there, You know, there's a whole department at Netflix for awards, you know. It's it's like, it is a cottage industry for sure. And, and um, yeah, and... You know, in in the in the in entertainment journalism, it you know it it their their entire websites and podcasts and whatever else devoted to awards. There's a lot of it, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot, isn't it? But I'm not like uh, you know. I feel like you're sort of putting me in the position to defend the Oscars, which I will happily. But I also want to start by saying that the Oscars are absurd. Like they're ridiculous and uh, over the top and insane and. That's part of what I love about them is the excess and the sort of foolishness of them. And I hope that the book strikes the tone of saying that they are both meaningful if you look at them the right way and they can teach us about how culture evolves and how movies and uh, Hollywood evolves. But they are also ridiculous and funny. And we should kind of laugh at the ridiculousness as well. So that's kind of the tone I wanted to strike. But that's precisely what it is. Uh, what I wanted to say because I, I um, it sounded almost like I was going to do a gotcha interview. It was like I've got you on here to trap you and, <laughs> and tell you what I think about that. But that's it. It was the idea of oh, do I really want to read a book about the Oscars? And then I read the book and I was like, yes, I absolutely do want to read a book about the Oscars because it's such a great sort of history of how we got to where we are. And and where it all started, because even right from the very beginning, the whole idea of what is the academy, you know, what are we going, what are we even making this for, uh, you know, the naming of the academy, right from its very inception, was a, was a sort of controversial project, right? Yes, um, I, I mean, people might be surprised to learn that the reasons the academy were founded had nothing to do with awards. Awards were just, uh, you know, something on a list of brainstorms of what they might do, you know, when they came up with the idea in 1927. Um, awards are basically the thing that survived and became most successful that they did because it turns out people love winning awards. <laughs> but many other things that the early Academy did uh, were despised. You know, at the beginning, you know, it was founded by, it was the idea of Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, of course, and, you know, the, their early rhetoric was very utopian. They saw themselves as like the League of Nations for Hollywood. It's very 1920s. Um, that was going to promote harmony within the industry and, you know, promote motion pictures throughout the world and yada, yada, yada. And that's all great. But there was a lot. If you look under the hood of some of that uh, utopian uh, vision there, you know, there's a lot of uh, controversy um, you know, for one thing, Hollywood had a terrible image problem in part because all of the sex, murder and drug scandals of the early 20s, like, you know, the trials of Fatty Arbuckle and the murder of William Desmond Taylor and all those great like Tinseltown scandals um, and the threat of government censorship of the movies was on the rise. Um, you know, the conservative religious element of the country saw Hollywood as a cesspool, a den of sin and uh 
sort of the embodiment of, you know, post-World War II libertine mores. And um, that was a real threat to the industry. And um, part of what they did was create the Hayes Code. But the Academy was part of that idea that let's rebrand and let's call ourselves not a cesspool, but an Academy. You know, it's very lofty. <laughs> the Athenaeum of, of motion pictures. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and then the other thing that was going on was uh, the threat of unionization. Um, you know, like I say threat. It was a threat to people like Louis B. Mayer. What was happening was that, um, you know, the craftspeople were unionized, but the actors, writers, and directors were not. And there were inklings that that might happen and that the, the creative professions might might form guilds. And uh, that was a threat to the studio heads like like Mayer. And so what the early Academy did a lot of was, you know, by harmony, they meant, you know, adjudicating uh, employment disputes and negotiating in contracts. And um, they were hated by a lot of the rank and file because uh, they were seen as a company union, a sort of tool of the producers to control everyone, which was kind of true. And um, it actually worked, it, you know, in the, in the sense that it, forestalled the creation of the guilds for several years. You know, like SAG didn't form until the like deep in the depression in 1933. Mm. And once that happened, the guilds hated the academy. They really went to war with the academy. They would tell that, you know, these guild, the new guilds would tell their members to resign en masse from mm. the academy. It's either them or us. And they would boycott the Oscars. And it took until the late 30s when Frank Capra was the head of the academy. You know, he loved winning Oscars. He loved the Academy. And he saw that they were hated for uh, all these sort of labor um, role, th this labor role that they had. And so he just said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to jettison all that and just keep the awards because everyone seems to like that. <laughs> and that's sort of how the the purpose of the Academy took took shape. And it's brilliant going through your book. It's such a because in a way. The the Oscars are like the um what's Hitchcock called them the MacGuffin of the book that they go through the book and you're 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 learning about that but you're also really learning a huge history of Hollywood um it, it, as you go along and so I would recommend this book to anybody who as I say who comes from my position of being slightly miffed by perhaps where we've arrived with the Oscars and certainly in terms of social media and maybe a bit bigger you will get a great history of of the Oscars, but you will also get a great history of the movies in general uh, from this angle. Um, what I... Uh, uh, Capra does, you know, he's a funny guy because he's he's made some amazing films, but he, he doesn't come out of it particularly well. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I had a friend who read a draft of the book and he said, my conclusion is that I hate Frank Capra, which surprised me because I think there's a lot to admire about him. And he sort of, you know, uh, his uh, his own account from his his uh, sort of somewhat uh, fictionalized autobiography, the name of the above the title, he talks about how he sort of positioned himself. He was desperate to win an Academy Award. And he kept he according to him, he kept making different movies to try to win an Academy Award almost before anyone else really was paying attention or cared or, or found the awards that valuable. And then, you know, amazingly, he he. You know, he was a an Italian immigrant and uh, a sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of person. And he, so he saw the academy as the Brahmins and you know the, the the establishment that he wanted to crack. And he finally won that Oscar. He won like every Oscar for uh, It Happened One Night. And then he became the 
president of the academy right after that. The crazy part is that the academy was getting attacked by all the guilds and Capra would not join the director's guild. He wasn't really a, a pro-union kind of person. Until, they final, until finally he had a big dispute with Harry Cohn over a movie at uh, Columbia. And then he got really angry at you know, the studio bosses. And so he joined the, he not only joined the uh, director's guild, he became their president as well. So he was the president of the union and the president of the academy while the unions were attacking the academy and threatening to boycott the academy awards where he was emceeing as president. And so he was on, he was basically the general uh, of two sides of a war at the same time. <laughs> it's such an insane story. And yeah, I think you could see it as a kind of opportunism and, you know, self, he was sort of driven by a lot of self-interest. But I mean, there's like, you almost have to admire just like the gumption of it all. The chutzpah. The yes. Yeah, absolutely. I do love going back just a little bit. I do love as well how the everybody's arguing about, it's always that great thing of history that history just arrives to you. You're born into the world and there it is. The Oscars exist as they've always existed. But there's a there's a time when people were saying, should we just give them a scroll or something? Should we give them some yeah. kind of trophy or you know and how it's um you know how who named the oscars for instance becomes a a, a huge sort of debate and it's is not resolved um everybody's competing to say oh i named it after my uncle and um, right right i mean i sort of loved noting those little moments along the way when these bits of you know ceremony fell into place just even the drama of opening the envelope you know, at the beginning, they just re they just released. Yeah, they, at the beginning, they just released the the winners and uh, runners up to the press and they were printed in the newspaper. And then they finally figured out, oh, we can create a little suspense at this thing if we, you know, keep it a secret and open the envelope. And, you know, seeing something like the, the red carpet take shape or opening medleys and production numbers. Um, uh, you know, hosts. And I mean, that's again, that's not really the driving force of the book, like and the horse race isn't the driving force mm -hmm. of the book. But it's sort of through those things, you can sort of track how how Hollywood's evolving and kind of what what else Hollywood is freaking out about, whether it's labor relations or, you know, the blacklist or, you know, the 60s generation um, coming up. Uh, you know, the Academy always has to deal with change in the world and in movies and to see them struggle with it. I think those are the interesting points along the way. And so the book was never going to be a blow by blow of every single year um, and what won and what lost. I have those books on my shelf here. You know, they're most of them predate Wikipedia. So, mm. you know, I value them, but I wanted to write a book that was really narrative driven. And so it would just... The idea was just to choose about a dozen years to like really delve into and years that told a larger story about something bigger that was happening. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very no. I mean, I, I don't I'm not necessarily let's not go through it necessarily chronologically because um, I find my mind is hopping about here because uh, I, I think one of them really interesting. Let's hop. Let's hop. Let's hop. Uh, one of the interesting <laughs> ones is, is the way you describe the Miramax fight because that they in many ways weinstein weinstein um harvey really institutes the sort of new aggressive going after the oscars and i just thought the way you wrote about it was brilliant because you do this thing of inserting these sort of paragraphs where 
And by the way, while he's doing this, he's assaulting this actress in this hotel and he's doing this here. And it interleaves uh, through the story of Miramax trying to win an Oscar for Shakespeare in Love. And it's it's it just shows how insidious he is that this was all going on at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that was very tricky. Um, I had actually started writing the book before the scandal before the me too movement obviously you know you can't tell the story of the oscars without harvey weinstein and yet you can't tell the story of harvey weinstein without this much more important thing that has happened since and mm. you know what of course was happening during um and that story has been told in a lot of really great books you know by you know ronan farrow and uh you know uh the the, the reporters who broke the story um uh, you know, and she said, so um, what I so I really thought about it hard because I didn't just want to set that all aside and tell the story of Harvey Weinstein, Oscar Maven. It's sort of, you know, it's an incomplete story. And, yeah. and yet that's the story that was t was that was told about him at the time that he was this sort of bully, but he had this magic Oscar touch. And he it was this rise and rise and rise uh, often on the backs of other people who he, you know, filmmakers who uh, couldn't stand him or who fought with him. So what I thought I could do is tell both stories at once and show you how they were linked. In other words, uh, I think that the line in the book is like he was building himself a golden shield. You know, mm. he how did he use that, that reputation for the golden Oscar touch to avert people's gaze and to amass the kind of power that he needed to keep the uh you know serial sexual assaults uh out of you or intimidate people who might catch on or intimidate you know the many women who otherwise might have spoken up so um so that you know it was a very hard chapter to write and at the same time i i you know that that infamous year 1999 of shakespeare in love versus saving private ryan has sort of been reduced as well to this idea that Harvey like bought the Oscar and that mm. the wrong movie won. Mm. And once you look closer at it, there are so many interesting twists and turns in that story. And um, as much as people love to talk about the Miramax side of it and the Shakespeare in Love, you know, aggressive campaign and everything, there's a whole other story to tell about DreamWorks and Steven Spielberg and Harvey uh, um, Jeffrey Katzenberg and why this campaign for Shakespeare in Love so drove them up the wall and their kind of counter campaign that, you know, DreamWorks ended up spending more money in the end for Saving Private Ryan than Miramax did for Shakespeare in Love. It's sort of, it's not remembered that way. But um, so looking at that company as well, I thought it was really fascinating. So they basically bought the Oscar, but didn't get the Oscar. <laughs> you know, they, they, they spent the same money, but didn't get it. Yeah. I mean, they spent more. And yeah, the important thing about that in terms of Oscar history is that, you know, DreamWorks really felt assaulted um, by this sort of renegade guerrilla campaign from Miramax. And it worked in the sense that Shakespeare in Love won. And uh, I think there are a lot of legitimate reasons why it won. You know, people loved, actors love it. It's about actors, you know. Um, in a way, it's a, a sort of funhouse mirror of Hollywood itself. It's, it has tons of industry jokes. It's light and romantic and, you know, not a bad movie. But people, there was this assumption that Saving Private Ryan was 
the front runner. It was Spielberg's big war epic. It had been the front runner for half a year before Shakespeare in Love even came out. And then there was this business about how, you know, was Harvey negative campaigning? And I sort of, tra- you know, I, I had been hearing different versions of this. And I actually found the person in the middle, who the, the journalist who had heard Harvey tell her, oh, you should write XYZ about Saving Private Ryan, that it's only good in the first 25 minutes during this D-Day sequence. And then it just becomes a standard World War II movie. That person alerted uh, DreamWorks. And then they, you know, Harvey denied, denied, denied. But um, that is sort of what activated this, you know, all out war. And anyway, after because it worked and because Shakespeare in Love won, uh, DreamWorks basically said, we're not going to let this happen again. And the next year they took the, you know, what was being called the, the Weinstein playbook and they did it double. You know, they spent more money and they hired more consultants and they won for uh, American Beauty. And then they did it again the next year and invented more things for um, uh, Gladiator. You know, they had started having talkbacks like, you know, at special mm. screenings. How many times, you know, this is just a staple of Oscar season now, but it was a way to out Weinstein Weinstein and it worked. And then you get this just arms race of campaigning and suddenly every studio needs a, you know, a, a SWAT team of strategists and a, you know, huge budget and it's, it, talkbacks that go on for months. And that's how it got bloated. And I, and I mean, I, my thing with Saving Private Ryan is it's, it wasn't even the best Second World War movie that year. I mean, I think the Thin Red Line should have won. <laughs> but I, that, I mean, a serious question. What what happens with that kind of film, a film that probably doesn't have much chance, doesn't have much? The director is not going to show up for a Q&A. He's not going to do the red carpet. He's not going to uh, uh, even turn up to the Oscars. So what what does Fox do with the Thin Red Line when it gets nominated? Not only that, but there were two Elizabethan movies that year because there was oh, also yeah, Elizabeth, of course, yeah, Kate Blanchett. And film. I think I think one of the you know more suspect wins was in Best Actress when Gwyneth Paltrow beat Kate Blanchett playing Elizabeth. Oh my God, I forgot about that. But then also Judy Dench won Best Supporting Actress for her like eight minutes on screen as queen elizabeth so it was there were a lot of elizabeths there was a lot of world war ii you know life is beautiful was another mayor max movie that year which is also a world war ii movie yeah it was kind of a strange year where everything was either world war ii or queen elizabeth doubled do you what was that year that they had frost nixon and they brought out all the actors to 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 read out uh, and Anthony Hopkins was on stage and a whole bunch of others. I think it was Michael Douglas. And they read out the nominees. And one of the nominees who won in the end, I think, was Frank Lalanga uh, for Frost Nixon. Oh, Frank Langella. Langella, sorry. Yeah. yeah. God, I'm garbling names at the moment. Uh, Frank Langella. And, and whoever was reading the sort of the little bio of him said, uh, Frost Nixon, in which Frank Langella does uh, such a brilliant portrayal of Nixon. Nobody else could ever do it. And I'm just thinking, wait a minute, Anthony Hopkins is stood right next to you. It's right there. <laughs> it's right there, man. What do you think? Yeah, it's I like, know. We need I mean, Nixon versus Nixon. Yeah. It, it's so funny how <laughs> um, the Oscars is just ripe for this, uh, for these kind of contrasts and doublings and... Um, you know, moments of unintentional humor. Absolutely. Okay, so um, when did you start sort of covering the Oscars sort of professionally? Were you, did you 
uh, you've, you attend them. You've attended them uh, in the past. When did you start attending sort of the Oscars as in person? Yeah. So I'm a staff writer at The New Yorker and I used to run the office Oscar pool. And um, that kind of grew into me uh, covering the Oscars for The New Yorker website. Uh, and, you know, The New Yorker is not a place where a ton of people are into the Oscars. I'm kind of like, I'm a little bit lonely there. Uh, you know, like we're we're a few floors away from Vanity Fair where everyone is obsessed with the Oscars. And I'm like the <laughs> only person in the New Yorker who's like, the Oscars are happening. And what happened was the year of Oscars So White, uh, 2016, uh, I pitched a story and I said, we should really do like a, a long story about the Academy and how they are grappling with this racial reckoning. Um, and at the time, the president of the Academy was Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who was their first black president. And of course, this was at the end of the Obama era. So, you know, we there had been a lot of attention paid to sort of, you know, black leadership. And she was getting she has she was overseeing this uh, initiative to diversify the membership in all sorts of ways, um, racially, by gender, age, uh, international and it was getting a ton of pushback and sort of turning into its own little culture war and so i went out to la and met with cheryl bon isaacs and went to the academy headquarters and uh wrote a kind of long piece for the new yorker about what the academy you know this this controversy over how the academy was uh was diversifying and this was of course against the backdrop of the the trump uh, 2016 election. Um, so that came out like right before the Oscars. Then I went to the Oscars for the first time to cover them that year. I was sitting in the press room and at the end of the night, this is 2017 now, uh, they opened the envelope for best picture and it's La La Land. But then it's not La La Land, it's Moonlight. And I just still remember the scream of, you know, the press room, everyone collectively screaming like, oh my God, something's actually happening. <laughs> We're not used to this. You know, <laughs> It's not just the ceremony and pop and circumstance and the and the gushing, you know, award acceptance speeches, like some, there's actually a kind of mystery to solve. It was like a whodunit. And so I covered that evening and it just, to me, felt like I had witnessed this sort of epic story of of Hollywood during this period of time, you know, not only going through, at the having gone through this year of racial reckoning, then having this sort of insane Hollywood surprise twist ending where... Moonlight wins in the most nutty circumstances. And it's it was like this, you know, to me, it just looked like, you know, like a movie. It was like it was like a movie. Um, and that's sort of where I got the idea for the book, because I was like, that, you know, I could encapsulate this year in which a lot happened. And then there are other years that sort of also had a kind of war of ideas or war of, you know, different elements of the culture or, or, or politics. Um, you know, for instance, in 1970, Gregory Peck was the president of the Academy. And I learned through doing this New Yorker piece that he had also done this kind of initiative to change, update the membership by bringing in younger people and, you know, demoting older people who hadn't worked in seven years. And that had been very controversial. And he had gotten like hate mail from Academy members that are still in his files at the Academy library. Um and so I kind of built a chapter around that too. Um, and the, you know, the the Peck purge, you could call it, um, was actually one of the precedents that Cheryl Bon Isaacs pointed to when she was, 
you know, doing this in 2017 or 2016, saying like, look, you know, Gregory Peck saw that, you know, the end of the 60s or beginning of the 70s was a time when the Academy had to had to move with with the times and bring in new people and uh, and stay relevant. Surely he should have issued a pecking order. <laughs> <laughs> I had that locked and loaded already. <laughs> oh gosh. I'm sorry. I apologize, Michael. I'm so sorry. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go over to Vanity Fair now. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they'd appreciate that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean that 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 runs through the book as well, these co- these conflicts in terms of well, specifically race, I was thinking of Gone with the Wind and um hattie oh, oh, the, hattie mcdaniel yeah hattie mcdaniel and and her situation where it's sort of a it's a win but it's a win for playing a certain type of role and you have a, a similar sort of point with Sidney poitier that there's a you know that he's 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 playing uh a, a sort of acceptable figure but at the same time he's he's personally has has gone through a great deal to get there mm-hmm. and um is often you know, privately a lot angrier than than he seems. And I just thought those, and then that, of course, leads right up to things like the Nate Turner uh, Birth of a Nation right. and 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 the infamous slap, which was, which has, I mean, you describe it, the Chris Rock, Will Smith slap as, as sort of almost, there's like almost a nexus where everything is meeting, of race, aggression, violence, sexuality, uh, you know, um, jealousy, that all these things, public, private, are all exploding in the same place. And it, I mean, in that sense, I, I came out of the book with much more of a respect for the Oscars as a sort of cultural event. You know, yes, tacky, yes, this, yes, that. But at the same time, kind of, it's kind of good to have that sort of prism with which to see things. Yeah, I mean, the first line of the book is the Oscars, it has it should be said from the start are always getting it wrong and yeah. I, I always say if you look to the oscars as a barometer of cinematic worth you're always going to be disappointed or enraged because there you there is no such thing as best picture or best actor or best whatever like it's art you can't it's subjective and so they're always getting it wrong they're always leaving things out they're always making the wrong choice or the choice that you don't agree with and you kind of can't you know art's not supposed to be ranked like sports teams it is supposed to be discussed. Movies should be discussed. And I think the, the Oscars give us a, a platform to talk about what we think was the best of the year, what we liked, what we didn't like. And even if that discussion is about complaining about the Academy, which certainly happened this year with Barbie, that's part of the point. And then, to so that's my kind of defense of all of this, you know, Oscar hoopla every year. But then I would also say to go back to the point you were just making is that the Oscars are really valuable as a kind of decoder for how Hollywood sees itself or wants to see itself. So, um, you know, for instance, to take that moment of uh, Sidney Poitier being the first black man to win Best Actor in 1964 for Lilies of the Field, which is a very kind of small kind of random movie for him to win for. But if you look at sort of what surrounded that win, Hollywood had just gotten into essentially the civil rights game you know they had they had sent movie stars to the march on washington including uh poitier and it was a moment of realizing that after after the pain of the blacklist and the sort of paranoia around and the fear around aligning behind you know sort of lefty causes 
Hollywood finally realized, actually, we need to be a part of civil rights. And that kind of energized the Poitier win. But for Poitier himself, as with, uh, you know, Hattie McDaniel and uh, Halle Berry and a lot of the, you know, firsts in their category, it's a very fraught experience to be that person. It's very isolating. You know, they, you know, you carry the an entire community's, uh, you know, hopes and criticisms on your on your back and you're the face of something that is not just an actor in a role. And um, all three of those people, I kind of weave their stories together because there were a lot of parallels in how mm. they sort of it was a, it was a very bumpy ride for them. And, you know, obviously a great honor, historic moment. Everyone says historic, historic, historic. But then, you know, they were they all faced a lot of backlash, including from the black community. They all had sort of career stumbles right after that happened. And they both, they all felt kind of hemmed in by the, the acceptable persona that they had created on screen. Yeah. I mean, Halle Berry, I forgot how much, how much, you know, how much she was mocked really. And, and it, you know, I mean, she's not the first actress to be very emotional when giving a speech in accepting an Oscar. And yet she seemed to get a virulence that was, uh, that was way beyond the, uh, you know, what was called for. Oh yeah. I mean, it was incredibly stunning to me to look back on how, what the public reaction was to her speech at the time in mm -hmm. Uh, 2002, because we just remember it as this like very emotional, meaningful, wonderful moment of her crying and saying the door had been opened and she's standing on the shoulders of all these people like Dorothy Dandridge who'd come before. And it's, you know, it is that, but it was also, um, you know, she said, I felt the tear down the very next day. And uh, you see this coverage of people, you know, writing into the newspaper to the LA Times saying, why did she have to make it all about race? And mm -hmm. Saturday Night Live, like, you know, making fun of her for crying and, you know, thanking Tootie from the Facts of Life on Weekend Update. And, you know, it just went on and on and on. And then the next movie she makes is Catwoman and she wins the Razzie Award. Like it was such a swift downfall, as well as, you know, a, 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 a black academic at the time attacking her in The New York Times for being too sort of trading on her sexuality. You know, she won for uh, this movie Monsters Ball. It's about a interracial romance and she got criticism for that she got criticism for um uh from angela bassett who revealed later that or she claimed that she had turned down the role because she didn't want to play a prostitute even though the role is a waitress so that there were just all it was a lightning rod it's the kind of thing that if it happened today would be you know a, a a twitter you know discourse for for weeks but then you know if you look in sort of newspapers and and uh, and magazines around the time, it was definitely not the way, it didn't play out the way it's remembered today, mm. for mm. sure. And I wanted I mean, to explore that, the kind of messiness of it. I mean, do you feel so goes so goes the Oscars, so goes America, in the sense that there seem to be so many parallels, like when money enters the game in a huge way, it's like money entering political campaigns in a huge way. When, uh, you know, when you have these flashpoints of, you know, don't play the race card, race card, I'm using air quotes mm -hmm. here on a podcast, so that's that's great. Um, you know, that that's... You know, there's en there's endless attempts to, to, to enter into a post-racial um moment when it just doesn't seem possible it keeps coming back again and back again i mean is are those parallels uh justified you think absolutely i mean that was i would say like a major 
way I thought about the book mm. is that, you know, how how are the Oscars yoked to American history and major moments? I mean, and and, and it's not just dropping in, you know, oh, and then, uh, you know, Nixon resigned at the same time. It's like, you know, Nixon resigned and then we got, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest about sort of corrupt authority, a corrupt authority figure and Jaws, which also has a corrupt mayor who looks a lot like Richard Nixon. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we get Nashville, uh, you know, also about uh, in which there's like a corrupt presidential candidate um, and, a, and a political assassination and a dog day afternoon, which is also kind of like that, that has that sort of jaundiced 70s vibe. Like those were the best picture uh nominees in 1976 and so i sort of look at that race and just how the mood of the country was reflected in these movies or the 1942 oscars which happened two and a half months after pearl harbor and it's not just oh yeah pearl harbor happened it's no actually pearl harbor and america entering world war ii completely realigned the movie industry um they hadn't they had really the movie industry had been very timid about tackling you know, the rise of Hitler and the war in Europe as it was then. And then suddenly, arm in arm with the U.S. government, it became a, a machine for pumping out war, patriotic war movies. And so those Oscars, are, you know, are really fascinating to sort of crack open and look through through that lens. I mean, Wendell, Wendell Wilkie gave a speech at, at that at that uh, ceremony, sort of cheering on the war effort. Um, and... Uh, Gary Cooper won Best Actor for this movie, Sergeant York, which was essentially like an army recruitment tool. So, yeah, I mean, I th absolutely think these sort of signposts, major events in American history, they changed the mood of the country. They changed the mood of Hollywood and the Academy voters. And they sort of serve as a meaningful backdrop for what happens in the horse race. And so it's not, again, so yeah, as you said, the horse race is like the MacGuffin. Uh, the Hitchcock term for like the plot device. But if you kind of look a little closer, as I try to do with these years, you see that um, actually what's at stake are ideas and cultural values and values of uh, aesthetic taste as well. And it's also kind of, it, I mean, we referred to it earlier with the the, the attempt to, there's, all, there's this cyclical sort of generational change that is happening. And you sort of get that with, you know, the Marlon Brando protest and, the, you know, John Wayne wanting to get on stage and surely, you know, the hearts mm. and the hearts and minds win with Bert Schneider reading the, 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 the speech of the letter from North Vietnam, peace envoys. So you are, you, you keep getting this, uh, 
this generational feel uh, that that it needs to be renewed, but at the same time, it's being dragged back. So you'll get a green book when everybody wants a more forward-looking picture. Uh, do you feel that the the academy nowadays is moving in a in a way, way that's more hopeful? Uh, or a way that do, do you see there's going to be um i don't know how to phrase this really i mean i, I guess the easiest way to ask the question is who's going to win the oscars this year <laughs> <laughs> because right way, now it's, yeah. sorry no go go ahead without me i'm not gonna well right now it's looking like oppenheimer but like i i okay there's a couple things i would say about that um i would say that since the oscars so white year the academy has been very much uh paying attention to inclusion and diversity which is of course a huge issue in the country at large and sort of is is a is a something that many basically every institution is looking at and um and being criticized for and um you know this for instance this is the first year that the academy has uh used these eligibility rules for you know diversity for a movie that that for for a best picture um contender you know i the winners have been i'd say i'd say if you look over the past 5 years it's been a really interesting period for what best pictures look like i mean parasite moonlight everything everywhere all at once these are certainly not green books or driving no. us daisies or whatever nomadland um yeah nomadland i think maybe this year is a more conventional year in the sense that there are more big budget studio hits like Oppenheimer and Barbie, of course, that are major Oscar contenders. But um, I certainly think that, you know, Parasite, which was the first non-English language film to win Best Picture, that was possible because the Academy became much more international in its voting membership. You know, Fellini never got nominated for Best Picture, you know? So it, it, there was a kind of xenophobia for many, many decades. Moonlight winning was... I think a gigantic deal. And it, to me, it echoed uh, 1970 when uh, Midnight Cowboy won. It was like the yeah. arrival of a new kind of movie that could win Best Picture that hadn't had been inconceivable before that, that, that a movie like that could not just be made, but win. So yeah, and then yes, it is often two steps forward, three steps back, and you get a sort of more conservative, boring kind of win or conventional, I should say boring, but like a movie that, you know, kind of fits the mold. But I think what's exciting is seeing those like moments of those wins that kind of energize you that have this like spiciness because you're like, mm -hmm. Ooh, that's an interesting choice. Like it, it, that is not what you would expect a best picture winner to be. And yet it is. And now we live in the world where Moonlight and Parasite have won best picture and a, a sort of Kung Fu fantasy, you know, like, uh, you know, multiverse you know, family drama about, uh, you know, an immigrant laundry laundromat owner is a best picture. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really exciting to watch. I think sometimes those pictures, um, those wins, it, it almost feels like the Oscars need Parasite more than Parasite needs the Oscars. I mean, it, it, I, I'm sure Parasite was very happy to get the Oscars and it opens up a whole new audience and a whole new... Uh, um and a re-release and 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 what have you but it's it's sort of as you say it rejuvenates the the actual 
institution itself. One of the things which uh, which is is really funny in the book and really uh, interesting is the idea as well of the ceremony. And especially sort of the who's going to host the ceremony, how they're going to host it. And this sort of focuses in on a particular year where I, I can't remember the year. Was it early, late 80s? Was it uh, 1989? I think you're, 1989? Are you talking about 1989. Yeah, I'm talking about the worst uh, Oscars the, ever. Yes. That's Which is of... also in quotes, because I, I feel like I defend them in some way as as not quite, you know, not not significantly worse than you know, the year before, the year before that. Um, but it was uh, a fiasco. And for people who don't know what we're talking about, this is yeah. the year 1989, where the show opened with an 11 minute uh, production number in which Rob Lowe sang Proud Mary with a woman dressed as Snow White in a replica of the Coconut Grove with dancing cocktail tables. It's like a gay fever dream. It's insane. <laughs> And the man behind it is Alan Carr, who was a producer. Uh, he produced Grease and um, was a you know flamboyant gay man um, who wore amazing caftans and threw you know, sort of like incredible bacchanals at his home in the Hollywood Hills. And he dreamt his whole life of uh, producing the Oscars, finally got his chance, created this insane, campy uh, 11 minute opening number and uh it was so disastrous that it basically ruined his career and it's kind of tragic in that sense yeah i mean i sort of thought of this story as like a tragedy within a comedy because the details are all completely ridiculous like this sort of insane <laughs> 80s excess but at the center of it is someone who's kind of like an icarus who flew too close to the oscar sun and then plunged into the sea and ruined himself and part of it was hubris. You know, he spent the whole lead up to the Oscars sort of putting his name in the press and saying, we're going to bring back the glitz. We're going to bring back the glamour. It's going to be bigger and starrier. And, uh, you know, people don't usually know who is producing the Oscars. Like, do you know who's producing it this year? Do you know who produced it last year? No, it's not something that the public generally knows. But that year, everyone knew this was the Alan Carr Oscars. And so when they didn't go well and they got panned, uh, everyone knew where to point the finger. And then there was this snowball effect, like Disney threatened to sue over the, you know, use copyright infringement for using their version of Snow White. And then all these Academy elders like, you know, Gregory Peck and Blake Edwards sent this open letter saying that it had brought shame upon the Academy. And basically it just was the end of this guy's life. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's horrible. And then Rob Lowe has a sex tape um, scandal. And it, it's kind of Twitter. It's all Twitter before Twitter, isn't it? It's, it's just like... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, but that's what I love, because you can even go back to 1941 and find something that would have been a Twitter scandal had Twitter existed. <laughs> it just it just plays out in, you know, a little slower and, you know, head of hopper columns or whatever. But it's there, you know, these little flare ups always happen. And I remember last year, uh, when the book came out, an interviewer asked me, this was right after the Andrea Riseborough, you know, to Leslie surprise nomination and the sort of crazy way that happened. One interviewer asked me like, so is this the craziest Oscar year of all time? And I was like, this doesn't break the top 10. Absolutely not. <laughs> it doesn't charge. <laughs> we kind of forget. We forget that like crazy shit happened in 1935, you know, and <laughs> the Betty Davis snub of 1935, I believe it was like. That was the, you know, Andrea Riseborough 
fracas of its day. Yeah, absolutely. What was a, there was one Oscars that I remember was Billy Wilder. I don't remember it personally, but Billy Wilder was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. And was it all about even Sunset Boulevard were, were up against each other? And, they were, yeah. And all about Eve won everything. And um, as <laughs> Joseph Manscripts kept going down the aisle, Billy Wilder stuck his foot out, tripped him up at one point. Because he was just so, <laughs> he was just like, the first few he, he was graceful about. But after that, it was like, oh, sod this guy. Oh, my gosh. No, I, yeah, I, as you know, I have a whole chapter about the best actress race of 1951 because it's so stacked, you know, mm. uh, Betty Davis and Ann Baxter in All About Eve mm. and Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard. And the winner was somehow Judy Holliday. Actually, no, I shouldn't say somehow. She was amazing at it. Judy Holliday in Born Yesterday. Um, but just these, you know, these iconic performances all at the same time. And some of them are in like New York waiting and some of them are, you know, it, it, they're all sort of scattered and the, the the press are in front of them waiting for them to, to hear. Oh, yeah. The radio. No, this, is, this is so funny. Yeah. So uh, Gloria Swanson was nominated for playing Norma Desmond, but she was in a Broadway play at the time. And back mm. then, you know, people didn't make a huge effort to go to the Oscars, um, especially if they were doing something on the East Coast. And so. She wasn't planning to go. She never. She claimed she never really cared for awards or Oscars. She was nominated the very first year. And she's like, eh, it's apples and oranges. It's, it's all phony. But it was her birthday right before the Oscars. And the people at her show, her Broadway show, said, let's throw you a little party on Oscar night for your birthday. And they uh, found this restaurant in the theater district called La Zambra and planned to have this little gathering after the play. And that turned into, within like, 24 hours it turned into like a huge batch with hundreds of people including all the oscar nominees who were in new york at the time and press from you know every major radio station you know sticking microphones in front of them and you know photographers taking pictures of every single moment and you know judy holiday was there sitting right next to gloria swanson and like the reporters were trying to get them to like fight <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, uh, i mean it's just ridiculous Oh my God! And I think there's a bit where um, uh, Judy, Judy Halliday wins, and Gloria Swanson describes it as like she, suddenly she felt terrible. You know that it, she was it was oh I don't care, and as you say, you know it doesn't really mean anything. And then when she lost, it was like it's the worst feeling in the world. Well, she was annoyed that people just kept trying to create drama, and almost, yeah. almost sort of wanted her to play the role of Norma Desmond in life and be this yeah sort of, like diva movie star and it, there's almost no way to win in that scenario because if you keep saying no i don't care i don't care i don't care you know it's sort of like you you know the more you protest that you don't care it sounds like you do so yeah <laughs> everyone's kind of caught up in the in the in the theatrics of it greta garbo really does want to be alone <laughs> yeah, don't, don't <laughs> stop hassling her all the time she <laughs> say it say it okay i want to be alone um <laughs> <laughs> coming uh coming back to the present day um one thing that sort of uh, uh again ticks me off lightly i mean i really don't care but at the same time i do um is the talk of snubs because this idea that uh it goes from being something you're awarded something that your peers are saying ah there you go to being like oh if somebody i don't like if, if somebody i like hasn't got received one of these nominations then it's a snub i mean i can't understand margot roby uh not getting best actress being a snub i mean Ben Stiller didn't get Best Actor for Zoolander, and it's the same performance. It's not 
You know what I mean? I don't I don't understand the performance is is not that good, is it? I, I mean, I think every every so-called snubs a little different and Right. What they have in common is that, you know, it's kind of like what we were saying about the cottage industry and the media frenzy. By the time the nominations come out, there's a kind of uh, received wisdom about who is go- who is in the race. And so when none of those things actually, when those things don't get nominated, there's this shock because everyone thought, oh, I thought, you know, she had a slot and no one has a slot. Everyone's just, you know, there's five empty nominations and they get filled by what the branch votes for. You know, this year there's there's been some uproar over the documentary feature category because they're all international films and these big starry vehicles that had huge, you know, that had like money behind them, like uh, the Michael J. Fox documentary or the John Batiste documentary weren't on the list. And it's like there's so many documentaries made every year. Like, why would you assume that those had, you know, a slot in quotes and, you know. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't object to the word snub as many as much as some other people do who follow this. Like, I think there are when there it it is it is telling and meaningful sometimes when someone who is very much assumed to be in the race is suddenly not, and you know, I think we can learn from those things. Like, why why didn't the Academy go for this? And they also are part of the sort of they're part of the they're part of the discussion. I mean. Going back to Betty Davis again, like when that was really the first major Oscar snub Mm. uh, when she wasn't nominated for Of Human Bondage Mm. in 1935. And it it was so uh, outrageous to people that she wasn't nominated for Best Actress that the Academy had to change its policy and and allow write-in votes. And she still didn't win. Um, But, you know, you could just by looking at this controversy – it sort of shaped the course of, you know, then she won the next year for Dangerous, which she thought was terrible. And she she writes in her wonderful memoir, The Lonely Life, how, you know, she thought Catherine Hepburn deserved it for Alice Adams, but she was winning for the previous year as a kind of a consolation prize. And the next year, someone else, you know, Catherine Hepburn will win the Oscar that someone else should be getting. And she says it's like the original lie that breeds like a bunny or something like that. Martin, and it's so true. Martin Scorsese That's... winning for Color of Money the... when he should have won for... Oh, no, Paul Newman. You mean The, the Departed, The Departed, yeah. The Departed, um, yeah. But Paul Newman won for The Color of Money and he should have won just historically for The Verdict or something. Exactly. And this is part of the reason why the nominations get all screwy is that people are sort of winning for the wrong movie or losing for the right movie or winning a sort of career capping Oscar for not their best work. And again, this is why I say, like, if you just sort of look at look at um, the Oscar winners as like the definitive movie canon, you're going to get it wrong. And the uh, the Oscars are always getting it wrong, but they're getting it wrong for interesting reasons. I mean, that's what strikes me as so ironic about the Margaret Roby thing uh, is um, uh, it, I've seen Barbie and and she's she got nominated as a producer and she's a as an actress she's a great producer you know uh it's uh i think she was nominated i think the oscars got it right she was nominated in the right category i i'm i don't mind uh if barbie wins the best picture it, it's a it's a great enjoyable movie it's a, a brilliant uh it's a I, you know it's a pity that barbenheimer can't win 
the best picture because because <laughs> really that's been the phenomena of the year that's that's right. a really interesting sort of amalgam but uh but yeah it's it's funny but i'm 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 you know if there's a snub why wasn't bottoms nominated for anything that was the best feminist comedy of the year yeah that's a good point I mean, it also tells you a little bit about how the Oscars isn't great about rewarding comedies, is often sort of ambivalent about huge commercial hits. I mean, last year, Top Gun Maverick, which supposedly saved movie going, according to everyone, got nominated for Best Picture and I believe Screenplay, but it didn't get the directing nomination or tom cruise for best actor that's the same exact result as barbie right so i think that tells you something like it's you know these these big movies that you know quote unquote save save cinema that sometimes doesn't matter in certain ways to to particular branches and i think there is this continual tug of war for the academy between commercial success and you know artistic merit and what they're supposed to reward and uh, that goes back to the very first year when there were two top prizes in 1929, one for outstanding picture and one for unique and artistic picture. I mean, that kind of tells you everything. We should have done that. This is the year we could have redone that and just had Barbie and Oppenheimer. And the only argument would have been which should win which. That's that's the <laughs> Well, it's like the Golden Globes did do that. They had the best box office achievement or something, and it went to the movie that made the most money, which was Barbie. Like I thought that was really funny. Yeah. The award for most money. <laughs> yeah. And what do you get? And it goes to the movie that made the most money, Barbie. <laughs> you get more money. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a bit like putting a hat on a hat in the end, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's I I mean I I felt the same. You mentioned it earlier. You're talking about DreamWorks learning from Miramax and winning the Oscar for Gladiator. And I remember watching Gladiator and thinking, I love it. It's great and everything. But I mean, it's like giving Star Wars a, an Oscar. Does it really need it? You know, I mean, it's it's got ev You know, it's I I've I grew up with this idea that the Oscars was was supposed to be in some way about promoting perhaps that that's where i get a bit jaded is the idea that it's promoting a certain kind of movie that's why i liked it when nomadland won because nomadland needs people to go and watch it or moonlight well, needs see, people to go watch it are making the defense of the oscars that i sometimes make which is mm. that it's sort of the only huge structural force in the movie business that you know ostensibly puts art over commerce mm. you're not supposed to win for most money you're supposed to win for the best movie even if that's a tiny little movie that very few people saw does it actually work that way in practice no because there are all these other things that influence what people vote for including commercial success and which people are well liked and charming and who mounted a clever campaign and got a lot of press um and then when a movie like Nomad went Nomadland wins the viewing public is kind of mystified because a lot of them didn't see it and they don't know what the hell is talking the, the academy's talking about and they complain you know so you know i i think it's i think it's you know the academy is trying to be two things at once mm. they're you know the academy awards are both an industry prize based on merit voted on by various branches to award their peers and they're a big tv show that has to get millions and millions of viewers in order to like fund the academy so those things are sometimes in perfect alignment they're often in conflict with each other and, and are you going to the Oscars this year? 
I am, yeah. Excellent. And what do, you th- what do you think will be the... Do you, th- do you have any predictions that you'd like to share? Um, do you think there's going to be any scandal? Any Who's going to slap who? I mean, Well, <laughs> see, that's the thing. I love the surprises. Yeah. I, you know, I was there for the envelope mix-up and the slap. And those of them, you know, it's amazing because you think... Well, you, you were know, dancing you this... with Will Smith. You were dancing with Will Smith after the slap. Oh, let me tell you. I had just turned in the manuscript of Oscar Wars to HarperCollins, and I didn't like the ending. I had written a sort of very cursory uh, uh, afterward, and I thought, this kind of sucks. I'll have to rewrite this. And then I go to the Oscars the next month. I see the slap. I wind up at the Vanity Fair party watching Will Smith dancing with his Oscar on the dance floor to get in jiggy with it. And with a huge smile on his face. And I was just like, this is the most surreal, dark, crazy image. God wrote the ending of your God. Like, (laughs) I know, like the Oscar gods gave me this ending. And then the next day I was like bedridden with COVID. So I sacrificed for that ending. Oh my God. Uh, But I would do it all again. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's you're putting your body on the line for, for the Oscars. I think sh- someone should give you an Oscar for writing this book, Michael. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> what would your speech be? Have you thought you must have thought about it in the course of watching all the speeches? You just must have thought, I'll do a Joe Pesci. I'll just walk up there and say, Thank you, Walk Off. Yeah, I know. Thank your agent, your team. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you I to love the all New that. I lo- Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not, I also love watching. I love the cliches of mm. uh, acceptance speeches and watching them change over time. Like, at what point did people start thanking my team all the time? Right. Yeah. It used to be my agent, my manager. Now it's like my team. I have to thank my team. And then at a certain point, people started reading off of their phones for their acceptance speeches, which I really <laughs> there, there, there's the cliche of like telling your kids you can go to bed now. Um, someone did that at the Golden Globes, I think, and they I I saw that their family lives in like Australia, so I was like, isn't it isn't it noon? I, I don't know. I just <laughs> I just find it so funny the things that sort of these things that sort of become, you know, speech cliches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Matthew McConaughey saying that he was the hero. His hero was him in 20 years or him in five years. And then another oh my gosh. hero is in it. That is an incredible speech. And he's like a he's like a revival preacher in that. He you know, he says like his hero is always him 10 years in the future. So he's always chasing like his future self. I'm like, is it it's like the founding text of a religion or something? It's, I would one that I I'm ashamed to say I would join in a in a heartbeat. Happy <laughs> McConaughey. Say what you like, but always say it from the back of your throat, man. It's it's an amazing it's an amazing gift you have. I'll buy your Lincoln. Um, final question, Michael. Uh, recommended film book. It's a question I ask every every guest. Uh, uh, what film book would you recommend our listeners to to have a look out for? Oh my gosh, I've been reading so many lately. Um, uh, let's see, what have I read lately? Um, oh, this new book, Burn It Down by Maureen Ryan, which is really about the the abuse, the abuses uh, in, the, on the, in the underbelly of the industry and sort of how it should be reformed. It's a really powerful book by Maureen Ryan. Um, I just recently read for the first time uh, What Makes Sammy Run, the classic 1941 novel by Schulberg about a sort of Hollywood climber, this sort of uh, Sammy Sammy Glick 
that's a really fun read for anyone who I've never read their hands that. on it. I've never read that, it's but so it, good. it comes up all the time. So I should really get my hands on it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I love, um, I love memoirs. I love gr great celebrity memoirs. Like I mentioned, uh, Betty Davis, the lonely life is a, it's a, it's, a, it's so good. It's so good. Uh, Gloria Swanson's, I'm just naming some books I read for the, my research, but Gloria Swanson's autobiography Swanson on Swanson is like, you know, it's not even mostly about Sunset Boulevard. There's so much detail about her, her career in, in silent, in the silent era. And it's so richly detailed and done. And there's a crazy Vanity Fair story about sort of the writing of the book. Um, um, Sidney Poitier's first memoir, This Life, is really so dishy, so dishy. And then the book I'm just reading now is another, another kind of modern classic which is um you'll never eat lunch in this town again by julia phillips the sort yes. of tell-all memoir that just is you know i, I mean I, I love a sort of i love it i love a tell-all and she really she really just lets it loose so yeah, she, and it she... opens at the academy awards in 1974 when she was um when she she was a producer of the of uh what was it? The sting. And, uh, and she watches the streaker and she, she just talks about how much cocaine she had throughout the night. I read that, but the first 20 pages, I'm like, Oh, sold. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, actually, can I, I just add this as a question. Um, what the reality of being there is, I mean, it's a little bit like, I mean, I go to Cannes, I go to Venice, I go to places where, you know, you can, they're very glamorous and all the rest of it. So, but I, I always wonder about the Oscars. What, what's it actually like to be in a theater? And is it, you know, is it the long queues for the toilet? Is it, is it easy to be there? Yeah. Or... First of all, people may not realize, but the Oscars are at a mall. Right. Yes. Yeah. You're absolutely. at a mall. And so you're going up like escalators and behind every, you know, wafting golden curtain is like a hot topic. So it's all you see the kind of smoke and mirrors of Hollywood glamour. You know, you, you're like you look one way and there is Lady Gaga the other way. You see like a Sephora, you know, 50% really off. weird. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, continually find that one year because I'm such a New Yorker. I think you can walk everywhere. I, like right. I was so stupid. I tried to walk to the Oscars because um, I didn't read the instructions about how you enter. And I got trapped in this like sea of humanity behind a chain link fence of just these incredibly huge crowds sort of yelling and taking pictures at the limos and i was the one person in a tuxedo i was like you know like a where's waldo situation and i was next to these people who had signs that said uh hollywood uh eats baby hollywood elites eat babies or something and i was like who are you what brought yeah. you here and they're like nothing we're just here to have a good time <laughs> and then a limo would go by and they go Hollywood elites eat babies if it's only total if only they did I love it that's so that's so medieval that's so, like burn the witch burn the witch I so, know yeah so what are you doing Wednesday then <laughs> <laughs> do you want to get some coffee after this <laughs> exactly after we burn the witch um, uh, what are you working on next Michael is there anything uh, if you've got another project on the on the go um, right now I'm, you know, I'm not working on another book quite yet, but mm. I'm, um, doing my other job, which is the New Yorker. And right now I'm covering Oscar season. So, uh, I just did an interview with Lily Gladstone, for instance, and I'm, I'm sure there'll be more Oscar coverage coming out. And, uh, she's going to be yeah. in the, she's going to be in the slot, isn't she? She's got to be the one to be, I think. I think so. I mean, 
part of me. Mm. I, people, the conventional wisdom is that it's Lily Gladstone versus Emma Stone. Mm. Part of me thinks Sandra Huller might pull out a surprise win. Yeah, I, I've people heard. Really, people in the Academy really love her in Anatomy of a Fall, and they also really love Zone of Interest. And yeah. I don't know. I just part of me feels like maybe that could be like a big shocker. But you know, obviously Lily Gladstone is great, and that would be a very exciting win as well. Yeah, I think I think sort of politically, I'd be happy for Lily to win it. In terms of actually the best performance, I'd probably go for Emma Stone. And Sandra Hula, I I for Zone of Interest more than for Anatomy of the Fall. But I, yeah, she's good in Anatomy of the Fall. I just think that's kind of fairly humdrum film. I think it's a little bit elevated by the fact it's foreign, <laughs> by the fact it by the fact we're reading subtitles. I mean, it's good, it's great. Justine Treat is great, but it's not. It's not. Um, I think people are going a bit crazy over something, which is okay. Uh, what that? Um, I mean, Zone of Interest. That's the one uh, that I feel almost is too good for the Oscars. I kind of think I don't want that to be in the conversation at all. It's just like, no, no, no. Get your dirty, glittery fingers off that masterpiece. I don't <laughs> even want it. Yeah, I don't even want it. You know, you, that would actually demean the film. It doesn't need to. It doesn't need an Oscar. It doesn't want an Oscar. Leave it alone. But at the same time, how amazing is that 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 movie is in Best Picture and Best Director? Yeah, I mean, that's that's crazy. Oh, I you think know? it's. So I think Academy's it's the best going film. For that. I think it's the best film. You know, I think Oppenheimer's really good, but I think it's a best film by a country mile. I yeah. was at. Um, I was at a, an event last night with with Academy members, and I, of course, was asking them, like, what did you like? What are you going to vote for? And this uh, actress, who shall remain ma nameless, was like, oh, that Nazis in the Backyard movie. <laughs> the Nazis in the Backyard movie. <laughs> okay, tell us who that was. Tell us now. Tell me now who that was. <laughs> Three, two, one, you're back in the room. Well, thank you for telling us that. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that's uh that's the Nazis in the backyard. How how to sum up a movie. Yeah. That's that's like Samuel Beckett's waiting for Godot, nothing happens twice. <laughs> That'll be in the title of my next book, Nazis in the Backyard. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Michael, thank you so much for, for the book. I really enjoyed it. And that's coming from someone who was initially an Oscar skeptic, but uh, uh, recommend, highly recommend it for all my listeners. And uh, thanks for, for talking to me. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. hope you enjoyed the conversation i certainly did uh hopefully michael did as well uh if you wish you can uh, also listen to the sister Cop podcast cinema italia which is a exploration celebration of italian cinema uh available where all podcasts are and we also have a serial called connery uh which is a novel uh, read by Kai Ross and written by myself. Uh, a speculative fiction about a young man who meets Sean Connery and whose life is never quite the same. So both of those available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but until next week, take care.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.